This is Christopher Benincasa for the Jersey Arts Podcast. Tonight at Douglas Library at Rutgers University, a mother and her daughter, one an artist, the other a scientist, will have a public conversation about where, why, and how their fields intersect. Judith Brodsky is the artist, and this conversation is part of a reception for her new solo exhibit called The 20 Most Important Scientific Questions of the 21st Century. The scientist is Francis Brodsky, Director of Biosciences at University College London. The conversation will be moderated by curator Ferris Olin, who has worked with Judith Brodsky on various projects for decades, including founding the Center for Women in the Arts and Humanities at Rutgers University, which is presenting the exhibit. I recently had coffee with the two friends in Judith Brodsky's kitchen, where we talked about their work, their activism, and, of course, the 20 most important scientific questions of the 21st century. Questions like, what came before the Big Bang? Could science prove there's a God? And is evolution truly random? I started by asking Judith this one. What is the hardest math problem? Well, the hardest math problem I decided after a lot of thinking about it was that women are not allowed to be mathematicians. And that's still true today, that women are discriminated against if they're interested in math. Um, And so... Uh, what I did is, um, instead of uh, doing some kind of abstract form of a mathematical equation or something, um, I did a, uh, uh, a drawing about Hypatia, or Hypatia, who was a woman uh, mathematician who lived in the 3rd century AD um, in Alexandria, Egypt, you know, during the period of the Roman Empire. And she was a mathematician, and an, an important mathematician whose work is still uh, used today. Um, she was a Euclidean mathematician, um, but Euclid couldn't solve the problem of how you would uh, express conical sections. You know what a cone is, and how would you how would you do a mathematical uh, equation that would explain what a section of a cone would be like? And so she was the one who figured those equations out. Um, but the citizens of Alexandria didn't think it was appropriate for a woman to be a mathematician, and so they they um, arrested her, and they dragged her through the streets of Alexandria, and they beheaded her because she was a woman mathematician. So that was what I thought was the hardest problem in math. Okay, let's do another one. What's another question that you took on? Um, another one is called... Um, how much nature is enough? And this was one that I did a lot of thinking about, you know, because it relates to our issues of climate change and everything. And uh, when I look out of my studio window, um, I'm looking at uh, my back um, yard. I'm looking at um, the kind of sort of a a natural area that's beyond my yard. And so I see um, deer crossing past that window and now foxes. So here are these animals that we consider in the wild and they're now in the confines of a suburban community. Um, where does where does the wild stop? Where does the community, the suburban community, reach out to? You know, all those issues came to my mind. So I have this huge fox that I did in the drawing. 
but it's a ghost fox and and it's a ghost fox it's gray it's reversed rather than being red and and being uh you know seen in a normal kind of way and by making it a ghost fox then i feel i entered the whole realm of the intellectual um uh furor around climate and around nature rather than having it be so specific so how did this show come together well when i started this exhibition i was um it was because i read a piece in the new york times where uh, it was the 20th anniversary of the science times section and they had asked different scientists uh to say what they thought the most important questions were for scientists in the 21st century and so when i read the list I thought it was a really interesting list and it suggested a lot of visual ideas to me. And the list was kind of a crazy list. Uh, some of the questions seemed to be um, really important questions and others seemed to be a little bit trivial. So I was really interested in the fact that uh, the scientists who'd been invited to uh, ask these questions, uh, you know, the, the kinds of things that they had thought of were really quite interesting. And one of the things that I do and always have done in my work is um, I address issues that I think are interesting issues, important issues in our civilization, in our culture, in our particular era. And so I decided that this was really an interesting list. I'd often worked with scientific themes before, and so I started this about, oh, a little bit more than 10 years ago. And so I did several. And then there was a hiatus when I was doing other things. And I came back to it a couple of years ago and finally finished out the set. So this is the first time that I've actually finished the project. And so some of the uh, earlier pieces won't be shown because they've been seen before, um, but the bulk of the pieces are going to be shown in this exhibit. Um, one of the reasons the show is, is now happening is because Judy was um, invited to be the, the Estelle Lebowitz visiting artist, um, which is an endowed art, art residency that we have um, um, within the Center for Women in the Arts and Humanities, uh, endowed by uh, a wonderful uh, donor and uh, scholar at Rutgers, Joel Lebowitz, to uh, honor his wife's memory. She was an artist, and he gave the, um, a donation uh, probably about 15 years ago, which we, uh, allowed us to invite world-class scholars, distinguished artists, to come have an exhibit uh, and be in residence to meet with students um, in various classes and also give a public lecture, which we're having tonight. So let me add to that, because um, Ferris was the one who established the Lebowitz series. And uh, Ferris is curating my exhibition, which is opening tonight. Um, and it kind of uh, celebrates the fact that we work together to establish what we uh, what we originally called the Institute for Women in Art, which has now become the center, the Rutgers Center for Women in the Arts and Humanities. And so in a way, the fact that we're working together on this show, she as curator and I as the artist, is kind of a celebration of our long 
long um, uh, our, our long careers working together, but also of establishing uh, the Institute for Women in Art. And one of our projects that's also come to fruition just uh, this fall um, is the publication of our book, um, which is on women's leadership in the arts. And it's one of a series of books that are being published by Rutgers University Press called Junctures. And the idea of the books is to provide case studies of women um, who are leaders in various fields. Um, because if you look at the availability of case studies about women that are used in MBA programs uh, at graduate schools of management or um, 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 master's degree programs in public administration or women's studies. There are, there's a dearth of uh, case studies about women leaders. There are thousands and thousands of case studies about men and maybe a hundred about women. So this is the third book in the series. The first one was on women leaders in social movements, and the second one was on women leaders in business, and then Ferris and I uh, did this one on women leaders in the arts, all of the arts, not just the visual arts. Uh, and they were, uh, we were also asked to have it uh, uh, be diverse in terms of race, ethnicity, um, country of origin, age, uh, age um, uh, 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 class. So it was really an interesting process to kind of boil it down. And the project itself was commissioned and initiated by the Institute for Women's Leadership at Rutgers, which is a consortium of about 10 leadership centers and institutes focused on women's leadership in a variety of areas, um, from global women's leadership to preventing violence against women and children, to women in science, women in the arts, women in politics, and it goes forth from there. You both share a long history of activism, and I feel like I shouldn't pass up the opportunity to get your perspectives on what's happening now. The subject of feminism is really in the mix these days. What do you see in the politics of the past couple of years that we might be missing? Well, that's a that's a really good question because um, I think without all the years that not only that Ferris and I have spent in the trenches, so to speak, but that a number of women have spent in the trenches, that this wouldn't be happening now. Uh, so it's very exciting to see um, the the Me Too uh, movement and to see um, the changes in the way in which women are perceived. But there's also this tremendous backlash and this huge um, disbelief of uh, Blasey Ford when she testified and um, and and doubt that she's telling the truth about her experience. So. It's uh, it's a mixed bag at the moment uh, of whether you know women are going to be allowed to um, be uh, to express themselves and use their talents and abilities uh, to to uh, fulfill needs in the society, or or whether they're not going to be able to do that. So um, I think it's extremely problematic at the moment, and one of the things that. I think is tremendously important is to talk about women who have been successful, not just to talk about victims, but to talk about um, the successes of women. And one of the things that we tried to do in the book um, was to 
classify some of the characteristics that are identified with women leaders, which are very different from the characteristics of male leaders. And still in this society, um, we think, tend to think of leaders as being male rather than female, despite the presence of women leaders in every field that one looks at. I, I would also add that I think part of the backlash is the same backlash that's um, hitting um, people who are underrepresented across the board. And that has to do with demographics. Um, back in about the 1990s or so, demographers uh, predicted that in 2017, 18, 19, um, demographics of the United States would change. And uh, we women have always been in a majority over men in numbers, but never with a recognition or power, however you define power and however you use it. I think this backlash about women and also about uh, minorities, people of uh, people's sexual orientation and so forth, is a last gasp about um, for many people who are being threatened and they don't understand that power is about sharing, not about being over somebody. And I, I, I would hope that with a new generation, people will be more consensual and collaborative because certainly our collaboration has been um, a joy for me and I'm sure for Judy too, but also for other people because we know as we go out and, and do our individual work and our collaborative work, we meet um, emerging and established artists, professionals, academics, entrepreneurs, and um, they're, they're telling us the same kind of story. Even the, the women in the books we chose, many of them changed their style of leadership to be collaborative when they realized that being authoritarian and hierarchical just doesn't work. And that's true in every field. You know, for instance, one of the things that's happening tonight is that my daughter is joining me and we're going to have a discussion about the uh, commonalities between science and art. And uh, she is a molecular biologist uh, and the field in, of science is still difficult for women. Um, uh, and uh, she has been very careful to nurture uh, women in her career. Um, one of the projects that I did a number of years ago before I started the 20 most important scientific questions of the 21st century um, was a project called 100 Million Women Are Missing. And again, it came from a New York Times article uh, that talked about the fact that women's lives around the world are still so miserable that women just walk away from their lives and are never heard from again. Uh, and when she was at college, um, <clears throat> she was majoring in what was then called biochemistry. And she was assigned uh, a professor who was to be her advisor. And she went to see him. Um, and he took one look at her and saw that she had red fingernail polish and said, I don't think you're going to be a serious scientist if you're wearing red fingernail polish. And so I did a piece about that. Um, she doesn't remember the incident, but I remembered her telling me about it. And so I did a piece that recounts the incident. And then surrounding the text of the piece are uh, fake red fingernails. I had to go to several CBSs before I could find enough of the same color of fake red fingernails. <laughs> That's a great story with a great ending, given your daughter's achievements. Uh, Ferris, you're moderating tonight's conversation between Judy and Francis. What should we expect? With this particular project, 
um, and the conversation we're going to have tonight with Francis, uh, it is my hope that people will see that there is not the great divide between the arts, humanities, and science, which C.P. Snow uh, talked about a long time ago. And for years, we've been talking about STEM and STEM faculty, and really, we should be talking about STEAM, including art in, in the STEM, because there really is a, a great connection between the two. Um, I'm also hoping that students who come into the library where the galleries are located will be attracted to walk in and think, rethink their common knowledge and think about these questions. And also, I would say that oftentimes people think of art as a pretty picture. There's really a message in art and, and the artist's intent. And I hope that those people will come away with ideas about art in a different way and also about science. And Judy, how about you? Well, I'm really excited that uh, my daughter and I, uh, with Ferris as moderator, that we're going to have this discussion tonight about um, the relationship of science to art. And this all happened, um, again, uh, as Ferris was talking about um, the importance of, of connecting up art to the rest of the academic community and the importance of having other people in the academic community realize that art is part of the whole intellectual process. So it was she who suggested that because this, um, the content of my work in this exhibition was about science, that um, there, there be invited a scientist to come have a dialogue with me. And so just as a joke, I said, well, why not bring my daughter over then? And so uh, what was wonderful is everybody said that was a great idea. So my daughter is a, as I said before, a molecular biologist slash immunologist. And currently she is the head of uh, the biosciences division at University College London. And that is after 20 some odd years as being a professor um, at uh, University of California, San Francisco um, Medical School. Um, and she researches um, a protein called classrin. She is the world expert on classrin, which is involved in the whole uh, cellular structure um, and involved in um, uh, you know, the whole business of the genome. But also in recent years, she's discovered that it also plays a role in muscle metabolism. So her work is related, while it's basic research, it's also related to the development of pharmacological new uh, drugs that will um, help people with medical conditions of different kinds. Such an interesting event and such an interesting series from the Center for Women in the Arts and Humanities. And it isn't just science uh, either. Um, for instance, one of the things that, that, one of the shows that Ferris and I did a number of years ago um, was on the body. And so at that particular point, we would pull in the women's studies people. Um, and then we did a show on um, how women artists created postmodernism and again brought people from different um, areas in the humanities to the gallery. And it, 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 we worked a lot on that to, to show that art isn't separate, you know, from uh, the rest of intellectual inquiry that goes on in an academic institution. Okay, you've got to tell us about how women invented postmodernism. 
it was women artists who made autobiography something that was um, appropriate for content in art. And before the 1970s, no one would have thought of autobiography um, as being subject matter. And in order to do autobiography, women artists also began to use photography and video in ways that people hadn't thought about in order to tell their stories. So that was one really good example. Then another example is how do you include um, the work of women into the mainstream of history of art? Um, women had always done weaving, had always done things associated with the house. So you have an artist like Miriam Shapiro, you know, who invented an art form called femage, um, in which she incorporated things like um, lace trims and fabrics uh, into the into the painting itself. She didn't want to. She didn't want to um, give up painting, but she wanted to insert the experience of women into what had been. Uh, basically a male art up until a male art form up until that particular time and if you look at artists today both men and women um, and the use of the domestic um, in the work of men as well as the work of women artists um, it's an extraordinary turnaround something I think about a lot is how thanks to the internet social media connectivity in general so many people have access to media, can create media, and without necessarily considering themselves to be artists, they're creating things, producing things that 50 years ago, even 10 years ago, you would have only seen in a gallery or a museum or on TV or a movie. To me, uh, the flattening of the field is really amazing to witness. I think you're absolutely right, and and it uh, it's it's really interesting to think about what comes first. You know, does the whole development of social media come after um, what women artists did in the 1970s um, in terms of opening up personal lives and domesticity um, to being you know things that everybody realizes are part of their own lives and are important aspects of our culture. Um, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, submarines come after 2,000 leagues under the, 20,000 leagues under the sea, Jules Verne, or, um, uh, you know, some of the space travel comes after H.G. Um, Wells, you know, and does, does art really precede the development of these kinds of um, devices that enable people to fulfill the vision that artists and writers have had? artist Judith Brodsky and curator Ferris Olin. The 20 most important scientific questions of the 21st century runs through December 14th at Douglas Library at Rutgers University in New Brunswick. And Judith Brodsky's conversation with her daughter Frances Brodsky, director of biosciences at University College London, will take place there at tonight's reception. For more info, visit the Center for Women in the Arts and Humanities website cwah.ruckers.edu and for more information about the arts in New Jersey visit jerseyarts.com I'm Christopher Benincasa thanks for listening The Jersey Arts Podcast is made possible by the New Jersey State Council on the Arts, supporting excellence and engagement in the arts since 1966.